0: Welcome to episode 32, the biopsychosocial-spiritual treatment model for chronic pain, What Happens at Home Matters, by Mark Pugh, from Clearly Clinical, learn, grow, shine. Hello, Clearly Clinical podcast listeners. This is Mark Pugh, Senior Vice President of Product Development and Marketing for Preferred Medical, a Workers' Compensation Pharmacy Benefit Manager. I'm glad to be back with you for podcast number three for the Clearly Clinical Library of Content. This course is entitled The Biopsychosocial Spiritual Treatment Model for Chronic Pain, What Happens at Home Matters. So I wanted to read you the introduction as we resume our discussion on the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model. Hopefully you've had the opportunity to listen to podcast number one and number two and so this is building on top of that. This particular course focuses on the social economic aspect of the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model and how it can complicate or help the management of chronic pain. Social economic influences on chronic pain can include friends or family members that act as enablers or bad influences, as well as considerations like geographic location or economic circumstances. Additionally, factors like the comorbidity of worklessness can influence treatment outcomes due to loss of self-esteem and social isolation. These external circumstances, most beyond the control of the individual, can reduce resilience and the ability to develop long-lasting coping mechanisms for management of the pain that will likely never go away. This course will discuss these factors and provide information for participants about how to address and manage these considerations in order to work toward positive treatment results. So as a reminder, we've talked about this up to this point, what the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model does is establish, enhance, optimize resilience, self-management, with a focus on the whole person. Now, there is a caveat that I did want to remind you of again. I am not a psychologist. I'm not a sociologist. I'm not an economist. I'm not a clinician, for that matter. But I do hang out with some really smart people, a lot of great physicians, doctors, MDs and DOs, uh, chiropractors, physical therapists, psychiatrists and psychologists, uh, uh, a variety of different specialties, nurses, pharmacists. Um, and from all that information as well as reading a lot of medical records and workers' compensation and evaluating my experience based on treatment guidelines, evidence-based medicine, and interaction with my audiences. So, it is a well-informed opinion, but I encourage you to do your own research. Don't take my word for it. It is an informed opinion, but you need to verify for yourself whether you're a clinician or a patient. So I wanted to talk about the concept of the biopsychosocial, and for someone simple like me, I kind of distill it down to what happens between the ears and happens at home has as much to do with the person's willingness and ability to get better as what's physically wrong with their body. What we're going to focus on this podcast is what happens at home. So I want to bring to you a quote from Chris J. Main in his article, The Importance of Psychosocial Influences on Chronic Pain. This is really important. It starts on page 461 of the abstract. The key clinical challenge in the management of chronic pain patients, assuming that cure is not possible, is to minimize the effects of chronic pain on function and well-being and optimize psychological adjustment. Again, when you're thinking about chronic pain, In the simplistic terms, that's pain that is there when you wake up, there when you go to sleep, and isn't going to go away until you die. So cure is not possible. So it comes down to management. It's to minimize the effects of chronic pain on function and well-being, which obviously is to maximize function and well-being while optimizing psychological adjustment. It's my opinion based on the people I've spoken with, the things I've read, that you cannot optimize function and well-being without also optimizing that psychological adjustment, that psychological management, that overview, i.e. the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model, that whole person. So it's really important always to keep in mind that managing chronic pain, the pain that will not go away, really is not trying to eradicate the pain or distract from the pain, but to give people the mechanisms to manage the pain to actually truly live with through over the pain to deal with the pain effectively so I'm going to talk about three different social contexts cultural economic and occupational so when it comes to cultural there are some things that happen as you're growing up that can have a dramatic impact on how you deal with life and certainly how you deal with pain so how has handling pain or life's difficulties been modeled to the patient by their parents? We learn a lot from our parents. Some of us don't necessarily have both parents with us during our full childhood. I fortunately did, and that's a huge uh, positive influence on mine. I recognize most some people don't. Unfortunately, not all parents are created equal. Not all parents are great. They don't give you a book to read when you become a parent on how to be an awesome parent. I mean, there's, don't t- don't take that the wrong way. There's thousands of books about being parenting. But there's nothing that guarantees that your parents are either good or bad. I have been a child, and I have been a parent. And I realize that we pretty much make it up as we go along based on the experiences. So when you're in a home situation and someone's job goes away, someone loses uh, someone that they love, um, either through relationship or through death, um, someone has chronic pain, a significant catastrophic type injury, how do they respond to that? How do they express that pain? How do they respond to the pain? So as we're children, we learn from our parents or other people of influence in our lives at that point in time. It could be a high school teacher, it could be a neighbor, it could be a pastor, it could be a whole variety of folks that have influence um, on how we look at life and how we deal with life. Those things all kind of bake into us, along with our personality, how we are going to respond to that pain. So if all of our models don't deal with life's challenges well, When life throws you a curveball, you strike out. When uh, difficult things happen, you bury your head in the sand and hope they go away. Not a lot of resilience, not a lot of coping, not a lot of overcoming, kind of throwing the white flag. If that's how you have had that modeled to you, whether it's dealing with life's difficulties or dealing with pain, which, in large part, when you're talking about chronic pain, really that's kind of the same thing to some degree. How was that modeled to you? If you had good models where things happened, and your parent or those people of influence really had some solid coping mechanisms, um, they really, you know, did what it took to to overcome it. You know, you're probably going to have that same mindset. If they didn't handle those issues well, if they were not resilient, if they shrunk from challenges, that may be how you respond as well. Now granted, how your parents and people of influence respond to life's difficulties and and or pain doesn't guarantee that you're gonna do the same thing. You know a number of people, I know a number of people who grew up in alcoholic families that are not alcoholics because they wanted to break the chain. You know of folks that were abused as a child, and they didn't grow up to be abusers themselves. Just because your parents or people of influence did not have great coping skills or resilience to life's difficulties or pain doesn't guarantee that you're not either. You can be the reverse. You can see that and go, that's not what I want to be, and do your best to be the opposite. But how you grow up, your environment, that cultural inculcation of who you are when you're very young certainly has an impact on that. So how has handling pain been modeled to the patient by their siblings and friends? So it's not just parents. um, It's not just other people of influence. It's by your siblings. It's by your friends. It's people that you're surrounded by. Same kind of concept, right? If you're hanging out with people, now obviously you can't pick your brothers and sisters. You can pick your friends. If you're hanging out with people that that don't deal with life's challenges very well, then chances are you're going to go down that negative rabbit hole just along with them. If they do show resilience, if they do figure out a way over, under, through, around obstacles in order to achieve their particular goals, That's going to inspire you to do the same. So all of that stuff as you're growing up incorporates itself into your personality, into your specific way that you manage life and manage life's difficulties and, in particular, this discussion, manage pain. So those cultural issues, those cultural impacts from the past as you're growing up certainly has an impact. So what about the cultural impacts right now for the patient's current pain How do family and friends and significant others treat them? Do they disregard the person or disregard the pain? Do they baby it? Oh, I'm really sorry. Can I do something for you? Are they empathetic? Can they see themselves in your circumstance and show you empathy? Not necessarily sympathy. Sympathy sympathy and empathy are two different words and two different kind of concepts. Sympathy is feeling sorry for someone else, and to some degree, depending upon the tone, sympathy can be condescending. Oh, I'm really sorry for you, and I'm sure glad I'm not you. Empathy, on the other hand, is more active. It's more seeing yourself in their particular circumstance and kind of putting it out there and and turning it into action. Or... (laughs) Are they, uh, you know, that kind of family that's like, you know, just rub some dirt on it. Just deal with it. Put your, you know, um, big boys don't cry. You know, all those kind of things. So, you know, for your current pain, do you do you get sympathy? Do you get empathy? Do, do you get completely disregarded? Do people kind of forget that you're in pain um, and ask you to do stuff? Or do they baby you? Um, you know, do they... Do everything for you, and so you kind of come somewhat codependent on it. Or they go, "Dude, come on, shake it off, rub some dirt on it, let's get through it." That's certainly going to have an impact on your pain, because if your people around you are enabling poor coping skills, like for example, um, you know, just dust it off, r- rub some dirt on it. Well, you can suppress and repress feelings and emotions about things. Um, And I don't know about you, but every time I do that, it tends to come out in one big explosion at some point. It's best to kind of let it out as it comes through and deal with it and address it. So if you just go just kind of ignore it, if you just kind of disregard it, it's like, well, you know, at some point, it's going to have some manifestation down the the stretch. Uh, on, On the other hand, if everybody in your current situation babies it, um, you could become codependent upon that. You, They, like, I know this sounds weird, um, and it's a little squishy, but they might kind of like you to be in pain because they get value from helping you, and you might, deep down, subconsciously, kind of want to hold on to that pain because you get value for it. Now, granted, not very many people ever make a conscious decision like that, but those relationships certainly can change um, uh, over time and and create an enabling circumstance. So how does your current pain be handled on that? Is your family, friends, significant others, are they negative? Do they have a negative attitude? Are they dampening your resilience by the way that they respond? Seriously, dude, just get up. What kind of message does that sound, right? Come on, you can do it. You're just faking. What kind of message does that sound? Here, let me do it all for you. What kind of message does that send? Are they dampening? Are they restricting? Are they making your resilience less by how they respond to you? Or are they positive? Are they uplifting? Are they supportive? What can I do to help you? What can I do to help you to get to a point where you can self-manage yourself? How can I be of assistance? I really feel for you. And so instead of walking all day, I understand that you have chronic pain in your lower back, and about tw- after 20 minutes, you're in significant pain. So we'll figure out a different way because it's not about me. This I, I, it, It's not important about what I want. It's more important for you to be um, safe and secure and uh, in, in, in the ability to, to be there and enjoy life. Are the enablers or the folks around you negative or positive? It's pretty easy to see and easy to understand. Obviously, those that are negative are not going to help you best manage the pain. Those that are positive will. So that cultural impact, that social cultural impact from what you saw modeled to you as growing up and how the actual interaction is happening right now to either encourage or discourage resilience and self-management can have a significant impact. So let's ask a different question. For the current pain, how does the healthcare system treat you? Are you just a number? Are you treated with compassion? Are the clinicians talking at you or listening to you? If you're a number in the healthcare system, in workers' compensation, which is the area in, in, in which I focus, um, we have claim numbers. Oftentimes, claim number supplants the name. <laughs> We almost forget that there's a human being behind that because it's all about the claim. It's processing the claim. It's the claim number, et cetera, et cetera. You're a number. You're a policy number. You're a, um, a, in uh, visiting room number three. You know, is it individualized? Is it compassionate care? Are doctors, clinicians actually listening to you, taking time to understand what you're going through? to understand how you're managing, to understand and identify maybe some uh, some suboptimal things that you're doing that can be changed, maybe to encourage you to continue the optimal things that you're doing, to be positive, uplifting. Healthcare system can be very uh, difficult to maneuver, to navigate, um, and if they're dispassionate, if they don't show you any love, <laughs> If they're not helping you through this and helping you find tools to do that, then you may have the wrong health care system. You may have the wrong providers on your side. And that can certainly impact because then it may be if the doctor isn't listening to you, maybe that encourages you um, to maybe act out and do things in order to get that attention. Maybe on the scale of 1 to 10, when they ask you what your pain is, if they're not going to listen to you at 4, you're going to make sure that you say it's 15 so they perk up and they listen to you. It's not really a 15. It really is a 4, but that's the only way to get them to listen. So those cultural, social impacts can have an impact on the pain and the management of. So a bigger question, maybe a more philosophical question, is what can the patient no longer do while they're in pain because oftentimes if you can't do what you want to do or you can't do what you used to do there's social disconnection at some point you isolate yourself you know you used to love to go to amusement parks now any kind of jostling messes up your neck and you're going to have a migraine headache for a week afterwards so you can't go and you just don't think that going to the amusement park if you can't ride roller coasters is any fun because you're going to be the one sitting holding all the teddy bears and the, and the popcorn and everything else while everybody else is having fun. So you just disengage and you don't go to amusement parks anymore. Maybe it hurts to walk. Maybe it's difficult to get out. And maybe you don't go out to eat anymore. You decline opportunities to go to parties. And you isolate yourself. Well, the more isolated you become, the more anxiety there is, the more opportunity you have to focus on your pain. And sometimes that anxiety can evolve into depression and passivity. So you really, when if you can't do stuff, you can't do the stuff you want to or you can't do the stuff that you used to do, what it can do is it create it creates a self-fulfilling prophecy by you disconnecting. And maybe you lose relationships, people, and activities. So it's important to understand what's important to you. A, a really, one, of the, one of the best things I heard a functional restoration program saying it was a f- it was the first time I was doing an on-site visit. It was one of the first times I heard an FRP talk about this. And functional restoration programs. Um, are obviously about restoring function in a variety of different ways. And one of the first questions they asked someone um, who was in pain, who was overusing prescription painkillers and needed to be weaned off, and they understood that, or they had a catastrophic injury, or they had a closed uh, closed head injury or traumatic brain injury, or whatever it was, they come in, they were somewhat dysfunctional. They they weren't as functional as, as they could be and as they wanted to be. And one of the first questions this FRP asked is, what can you no longer do that you'd like to do? And whatever that was, was the goal for their treatment. So it wasn't necessarily about return to work. Return to work is important. I'm going to talk about that in a little bit. But it wasn't necessarily about return to work. It was about return to life and return to function. So if you really, really enjoyed going hiking with your kids, and you can't do that anymore because of the excruciating pain that you're in, then we're going to figure out how to get you back out there walking. If it's fishing, if it's bicycling, if it's going shopping, if it's traveling, whatever it is, that's going to be our goal to help you through because they recognized that if you're working on a goal that's really important to you, you're going to work harder. Because you may or may not work hard at trying to get back to work because the supervisor was kind of a jerk and you didn't make a whole lot of money anyway. And, you know, you've been out of work for three years and, you know, it's it's kind of, you've kind of gotten used to being at home. So, you know, return to work may not necessarily be this this burning burning motivation for you but being able to play with your grandkids being able to go out fishing, sitting on a boat if that's important to you, you're going to move heaven on earth to get back to that so looking for what you can no longer do or used to do and getting that back because if you, if, if you focus on what you can't do You can disconnect, basically, from the world, Um, and that is um, a a very, very difficult thing to combat because that definitely plays with your mind. So all those different social, cultural things have been baked into how you manage pain. What happened as you were growing up, what's happening currently both by those around you as well as the healthcare system and by not being able to do stuff anymore and pining for that overcoming that and managing that well is really really important so let's switch to the economic social context economic well-being is huge in the management of life in general If you're worried about making ends meet, if you're worried about making your mortgage or apartment payment, if you're worried about whether your car is gonna be dispossessed, if you're worried just about buying groceries, that worry is going to impact decisions, it's gonna impact your attitude, um, and it potentially could impact uh, the, the way that you approach paying. So healthcare costs. Are a huge part of that, right? There's so many families that have gone bankrupt because of healthcare costs. Healthcare costs are not just money, but it's also time. Have you ever been into a doctor's office and you showed up 15 minutes early, but you ended up going back into the waiting, uh, into the actual um, uh, doctor's office, back the inner sanctum, if you will? Three hours late. I've been there, done that. I really don't like to go to the doctor's office if I can help it because I know it's going to be one, two, three hours of wasted time and just sitting there. And oh, by the way, while I'm sitting in the waiting room, everybody sneezing and you know coughing, and you know uh, you get sick if you're not sick already. You get sick just sitting in the waiting room. So healthcare costs your money and time. So a Portuguese study that came out a couple years ago showed that chronic pain patients have double the number of doctor visits. So people in chronic pain are spending even more time in doctor's offices, time and money because every time you go in costs something. Now if you're an injured worker from a workers compensation standpoint, it doesn't cost you any money. It certainly costs you time. But if this is on your own dime, and you're, have, and you're having chronic pain, and you're trying to scrape up the money in order to see the doctor or to get the referral to the specialist, and you're going more and more often because they're continuing to run diagnostic tests, which are inconclusive, but point to another diagnostic test, and guess what? Every diagnostic test costs a lot of money. Makes a huge difference, right? So you got all those health care costs now and in the future. So you don't know really what's going on. If, if you're in that circumstance where you're not really sure what's causing the chronic pain and they're running test after test, this is the gift that keeps on giving because not only do you not necessarily know why you're in chronic pain, but you know those bills are gonna keep come coming. And potentially, if, if they do find what it is and it's something that is debilitating and lifelong, those healthcare costs are gonna be forever. It's going to be those pills every single month for the rest of your life. It's going to be this treatment every three weeks or every six months for the rest of your life. It's going to be this device that's replaced every two years for the rest of your life. All that weighs heavily on your mind and can certainly uh, uh, make matters worse when it comes to managing pain. So you got those health care costs, the money and time, but then you also got loss of income it could be a partial loss of income it could be a total loss of income depending upon where and when you got hurt in workers compensation uh the system is supposed to reimburse you uh for not only uh, lost wages but also quote unquote pain and suffering right and th- how do, how do you deal with that but what if what if that goes away which most states have some have a cap on it as far as how long you can, can get those payments what happens when that goes away and, and you still can't work or you can't do the job that you used to at least? So when you have a loss of income, whether it's partial or total, if you're getting two-thirds of your income or half of your income or zero of your income, what do you stop doing? Do you pull your kids out of Little League? Do you stop going out to eat? Um, do you not? Uh, do you have to sell a car? Do you have to start taking mass transit? What do you have to stop doing? And as that may just be now, it may also be forever because maybe the chronic pain that you're in is not going to enable you to do the job that you've been trained to do, that you have the skills to do. And you may not necessarily have transferable skills to someplace else. So you, you would have to go back to school and do vocational rehab and find another, find another career and all that kind of stuff. And it's like, wow, this is so daunting. So the economic well-being on top of the social construct, the cultural issues, can really, really um, create some issues in regards to managing pain. Now, those may be realistic, right? It may be that the healthcare costs in money and time are going to be high, and they're going to be an extended period of time. It could be that your income is not going to ever be what it used to be, and you're going to have to make some changes. So how do you manage that? Because that's the reality. How are you going to deal with that? Do you just uh, curl up into the fetal position and wave the white flag? Or do you find some way to to, to fight through that, to overcome that? comes back to the mindset and the attitudes in regards to Uh, Dealing with life, and in this particular case, dealing with pain. So let's talk about the occupational social context in the social-economical part of the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model. How much self-esteem do you get from pain? Think about it. When you go to a party, when you go to a family gathering, and they say, uh, so what do you do? Do you say, I'm a parent? (laughs) Do you say, I'm a a, uh, grandchild? You typically recite the title and your company name from your business card. I'll admit to you, because I don't know you and you don't know me, so it's pretty safe. I get a lot of self-esteem. I probably get too much self-esteem from my work, from my job. always have. It is, uh, it is an area that I have constantly been aware of and have tried to manage. Um, if, if I were to lose my job, um, and I have on occasion, uh, I've had difficulties uh, at not of my making with my employers, um, and it has been very difficult for me to manage. So if you can't work or you can't do what you used to do or you can't do it as well, It has a tremendous impact on your ability to manage the pain. So what if X goes away? What if income goes away? What if your social interactions go away? What if your sense of accomplishment goes away? What if your normal routine goes away? you know, the one where the alarm clock goes off at 6.30 in the morning and you wake up and you shave and you take a shower and you get your clothes and you eat some breakfast and you get in the car and you drive to work and you have a cup of coffee at work and get settled into your desk and, you know, you have some interactions, you take some emails, you make a couple of phone calls and it's lunchtime and you invite some of your colleagues to go out for a quick lunch and come back from lunch and maybe you take a little nap in your cubicle but then you kind of get that uh you know, that, that, that burst of energy and and you finish on a high note and you're productive and you're marking off things off your to-do list and you get in your car and, and you drive home and on your drive home, uh, you, you, you check with your family to see, uh, if you need to bring something with you or if they're going to have a meal prepared, you go home and, and you eat and maybe you go walk around the block with the family afterwards to kind of get, um, everything, you know, uh, finalized and you see the sunset in the distance and, Uh, You know, then you sit down and uh, you read a book or you watch some TV and, uh, you know, put your pajamas on and set the alarm clock and you go to sleep and you wake up the next morning. That's kind of a normal routine. What about if your new normal routine is uh, no alarm clock, no place to go, lots of TV, don't change out your pajamas, Take a nap whenever you want to. What if that's your normal routine? That's not going to be very helpful, is it? So what if your income goes away? What if your social interactions, that, that um, isolation that I talked about earlier, what about your sense of accomplishment, the, the things that you can do at work that you can't do at home or can't do it with your family um, that gives you that sense of accomplishment? What if your normal routine goes away? What if your identity goes away? What if your identity is about who, what you do as opposed to who you are? And if you can't do what you do anymore, that really throws your identity up in the air, doesn't it? You're not really sure what to do. Occupational impacts are huge. People tend to think of return to work as only important to employers and I get that. Employers, the best person to do the job is the person that has always done the job. And so making sure that getting that person back to work is really, really important. I totally get that. But I believe that return to work is as important or maybe more important to the employee. Getting them back into that environment where they get that sense of accomplishment, where they get that sense of teamwork and collaboration, where they get that sense of um, a normal routine, maybe where they get their identity, is so, so important. Now, if you look at return to work, after 12 weeks, it becomes very unlikely that someone gets back to work. 12 weeks is not a long time of being out of work. And you get kind of settled into that new routine. Now, that new routine may involve stretching and exercises and everything possible that you can do to try to manage your pain. But it's not including work. So this German study of subacute low back pain. So subacute is after the acute but before chronic. So somewhere um, in that six-week to three-month time frame. And they compared the biomedical to the biopsychosocial treatment model. So, what they did is they created um, different cohorts. Um, one cohort got the biomedical, uh, which was obviously dealing, as, as we've talked about, with the bio- biological, physiological um, treatment of that acute, uh, subacute low back pain. And then the other cohort got the biopsychosocial, the full whole person treatment, if you will. And what they found was that pain intensity and depression decreased with the biopsychosocial treatment model. Function increased with the biopsychosocial treatment model. And the biopsychosocial treatment model resulted in quicker return to work. Return to work was 59% with the biopsychosocial model and 10% with the biomedical model. So that sure tells you that the sooner you can get somebody back to work and the, and the more that you can use a whole-person biopsychosocial treatment model, and I would obviously add spiritual to that, but that wasn't included in this, in this particular study, the better they will be. Their pain intensity, their depression is going to be less. Their function, what they can do, will be more, and they're actually going to get back to work quicker. more fully. So not being able to do what you've been trained to do, not being able to accomplish your purpose, may have a huge impact on managing that pain. Addressing that, dealing with it up front is really, really important. One of my clinical mentors, Dr. Marcos Iglesias, uh, who is the medical director for Broadspire, um, he made a, uh, published an article, uh, but he also uh, did this presentation at a conference uh, in 2016, I believe. Um, and in his article, he mentions, When an individual is removed from the work environment for a prolonged time, serious and often long-lasting adverse events can occur. So in his mind, worklessness is a comorbidity, almost like hypertension and diabetes. It gives the person more time to focus on their pain and actually can increase their disability. It results in a two to three time increase in the risk of poor general health, a two to three time increase in the risk of mental health issues, and excess mortality rate of 20%. And what Marco says is the bottom line, not working may be harmful to your health. So again, people think of return to work as an employer preference, as an employer desire. But in reality, return to work is as important if not more important to the employee because of the value and the sense of accomplishment, the sense of teamwork, everything that comes along with that. So you've got the cultural social issues of what you saw modeled to you growing up, how people are dealing with you and helping you deal with your current pain And the uh, economic well-being in regards to things that are taking your mind into a difficult place because you can't pay the bills, you don't have the income you used to have, you have to cut back on different things. And then the inability to return to work or the ability to return to work, all that stuff mixes into um, this biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model. And it's important to address. So, the overall impact of all of this, the psycho spiritual, the social economic, it feeds into perceptions, beliefs, and expectations. So, for the individual who is in pain, their perceptions are guided towards the psychological, the spiritual, the social, the economic. And those perceptions, they can draw potentially wrong conclusions. So if those perceptions are based on things that they have seen modeled improperly or suboptimally, then they may expect that result for themselves. Their beliefs, those perceptions bleed into beliefs. Those beliefs can be fed in, fed by past influences and a potential misunderstanding of their current situation. So their beliefs on what's wrong with them, on what could help them get better, on maybe doing an inventory of psychological issues that they need to address. Spiritual issues, not again, not the religion, but the, the transcendent, the this is bigger than me, issues that they need to address. The social, cultural issues that they need to confront. The economic realities, maybe, that they need to figure out. Those can all feed into beliefs, and then it sets up expectations. And unfortunately, with chronic pain, sometimes the expectation is that the pain will be eradicated. In reality, that pain may never go away. So what do you do with that, with the pain that is never going to go away? You have to reset your expectations. It's not about getting rid of the pain. It's being able to function in spite of the pain. Maybe overcoming the psychological red flags and triggers and different issues that maybe you have identified, either through your own efforts or through um, a clinician that helped you through that. Maybe it's the, the the social, cultural implications of what you have seen modeled to you as a child or growing up or what's currently happening to you. You're going to need to reset those expectations. Again, the economic circumstance may be something that is real. You're not going to be able to change it. So how do you manage that? Do you go find another job? Do you find a different kind of job? Do you lower your expenses? Well, How do you manage all of that? So the perceptions, the beliefs, and expectations are all kind of the outcome, if you will, of the things that have happened to you that have made you who you are at this point in time. And who you are at this point in time is going to dictate how you manage the pain, either well or not so well. So identifying those issues and dealing with those issues is really important. So I think when you're talking about the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model, you're really talking about an interdisciplinary treatment model. If you're going to deal with the whole person, you've got to deal with the whole person. So you've got to have, and and I've visited with many of these facilities around the country, um, uh, in person, on the phone, talk with medical directors, talk with the psychologists who are the clinical program uh, managers, uh, got a lot of input from different things. And I really believe that this interdisciplinary, the best way that you can help people manage their chronic pain, be able to figure out the coping mechanisms that are going to specifically help them deal with this pain has to be a combination of a physician, a psychologist, and a physical therapist. Think about it. Mind, body, soul. Physician, addictionologist, physical medicine and rehab, physiatrist, you know, there can be a variety of different physicians that understand the biological, physiological, because there is that aspect and that needs to be addressed. But that can't be the sole, sole approach. So the psychologist to help with the psychology, the social, cultural implications, the psychological uh, um, you know issues that have arisen. And the physical therapist to help you from... Uh, to build stamina, to to build back your capabilities from a functional standpoint. Those three clinicians and maybe others like a vocational rehab consultant or a nutritionist to help you know how to eat an anti-inflammatory diet and not to eat fast food all the time and help you figure out how to cook lower sodium at home. A yoga instructor that can teach you how to be mindful, how to stretch, how to put out of your mind completely what has happened in the past and don't worry about the future, but only focus on the present. So this whole ecosystem, you will, of clinicians, of a variety of different people are working as a team, collaborating as a team. It's really, really important for them to be able to do that. If you only have one of those, they're only seeing one aspect. So if you're only seeing a behavioral psychologist to deal with that, to deal with some of those psychosocial issues, that may be very, very important, but if you're ignoring the physical aspects, if you're ignoring the economical aspects, if you're ignoring um, the bad sleep habits or the bad eating habits or the fact that you don't do any kind of stretching whatsoever, um, those can all be problematic. So, focusing that interdisciplinary approach, that treatment approach. When we're talking about the biopsychosocial treatment model, it has to incorporate a variety of perspectives from a clinical standpoint in order to give you that whole person perspective and to help you manage that whole person perspective. So mind, body, soul. It's really important to deal with all of that. So a couple of tips for clinicians. Number one, Doctors need to identify risk factors. You need to go through and itemize and identify the psycho, social, spiritual red flags, the biological red flags. But you need to do it in a consultative manner, in an empathetic manner, not in a talking down or doing all the talking and not doing listening or not laying hands. The human touch is really important when it comes to uh, pr- presenting sympathy and empathy. So d- identifying the risk factors, not in a cold calculating method, but in a consultative method, in a, conserv- in a, in a conversational method, because open communication is key, the bi-directional conversation. Now granted, um, there are some things that a doctor has to take with a grain of salt based on objective findings because subjective is just as important as objective. Objective is really important to understand uh, their blood pressure, to understand um, their kidney and, and liver toxicity, uh, to understand their range of motion. It's really important to understand that. But it's you can't get to that understanding the subjective without understanding that person's situation. And that's really the second point. point try to understand, try to truly kind of get in and have that empathetic approach. Not the sympathetic, I'm really sorry for you, but the empathetic, let me try to kind of dig into this with you. Some really good advice I got from someone uh, who was uh, working as an educator with children. As you're talking with a child, whether it's your child or someone else, and you're six foot one, and they're two foot three. You can you're basically the jolly green giant at that point. You're humongous. The best way to converse with them is to get down on their level. Literally, get down on your knees so you're eye level with them, so they kind of get the feeling that you're equals. Granted, you're a fifty-seven year old isn't the isn't the intellectual equal of a three-year-old. Hopefully, <laughs> um, but Understanding that. So, doctors, clinicians need to have the same approach. Get down on their level. Be empathetic. Spend time with them in a consultative, open communication method. Understand that the subjective measurements are just as important as objective, and managing those two is really important. So, those are my two tips for clinicians. You need to identify the risk factors, you need to understand their situation. Oh, and I guess a third. Uh, third key would be interdisciplinary care, right? That physician, psychologist, physical therapist, voc rehab, nutritionist, yoga instructor, the mind, body, soul treatment model. So what are some tips for patients? One is to let people know you have chronic pain and not constantly, not complaining, but your pain may not be evident because you have, it's, an, it's a normal for you, and people forget that you're in pain. People may forget that you have fibromyalgia and you have pain all over, and so they invite you to do stuff, and you have to constantly turn them down. You may have to remind them, dude, I can't do that as much. They may forget over time. So don't remind them as in, God, I'm in pain, I'm in pain, I'm in pain, but just let them know because they may just not even have taken that in consideration. Um, And if you let them know, hey, that's not something I can do right now, can we figure out a different time? Or can we figure out maybe a less vigorous, uh, less physically vigorous activity? Can we figure out something else like that? Maybe that might help. So don't hide the pain, because by hiding it, you're gonna isolate yourself. And again, that isolation can create more and more problems. Avoid that social withdrawal. Isolation is your enemy. The more you isolate, the more that you commiserate with yourself, the more that you focus on your pain and your disability as opposed to the coping mechanisms and your ability, the more that's going to feed further and further, deeper and deeper down into that rabbit hole. So focus on ability focus on what you can do yeah you may not be able to run a 5k you might not even be able to walk a 5k but can you walk to the mailbox can you walk around the block maybe you can't do stairs but maybe you could do um, the moving escalator and actually walk up the moving escalator so it's less steps What can you do? Okay, you may not be able to make a gourmet meal because the income isn't there um, and maybe you can't get out to the grocery store. Of course, grocery stores can now deliver, but you you can't really get the materials of that. So go to a social networking site and find a unique, um, low-expense, high-nutrition anti-inflammatory meal. And put it together and spend some time cooking it. What can you do? Can you help someone else that has the same issues as you? Can you be can you go from mentee to mentor? Can you go from someone who accepts help to someone who provides help, who pays it forward? So do whatever you possibly can to not allow isolation to happen because that is your enemy. And then finally, know yourself. Figure out your coping skills. Figure out how you're going to manage that pain that's not going to go away. Is it stretching? Is it jumping jacks? Is it walking around the block? may maybe not all that much at a time, maybe walking 10 minutes at a time, but doing it five times a day? Is it drinking lots of water? Is it when an exacerbation happens, you remember deep diaphragmic breathing, and you breathe deeply into your nose and hold it, and then exhale through your mouth, and you do that two or three or four times consecutively, and all of a sudden, your stress kind of reduces, and you're able to get back to... The past that exacerbation? What are your specific coping skills? Is it mindfulness? Is it prayer? Is it going to massage therapy? Is it figuring out from your physical therapist what you can do? Focus on self-management. Now, some people do need prescription painkillers. Don't walk away from these podcasts saying Mark doesn't believe that pills should ever be taken by anybody. There is a role for them. But I think people rely on pills way too much. And forget some of the simple self-management skills. What are they? If you don't know your options, if you don't know what you can do, if you don't know what is available to you, ask. Research. If you got a smartphone, Google it. There's a lot of great stuff. There's a lot of apps that you can download to help with that self-management. And by a part of knowing yourself and creating those individualized coping skills that work for you, and it may be trial and error. You may try something and that doesn't work. Yoga hurts too much because it's stretching too much. Or you can't do the upside-down squirrel pose. It just, it just doesn't work for you. So don't do the yoga, but maybe there's less vigorous stretching that you can do to help. Focus on that self-management and find your purpose. What is your purpose in life? Is it to feel sorry for yourself? Or is it to find somebody that you can help? Is it to be so isolated and so frozen by your pain that you can't do anything? Or is it that you can be a model to others in overcoming difficult circumstances and show them how to manage your What is your purpose? And maybe with the onset of chronic pain, maybe you have a new purpose. You need to find that and know yourself. Find yourself. So to recap, podcast number one, we talked about why the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model is important. We talked about the number of people, lots of people that have chronic pain, that opioids, prescription opioids may or may not have a role. The biomedical treatment model definitely has a role, but it's limited George Engel created the biopsychosocial treatment model in 1977. It was focused on the whole person and it was built around optimizing patient behaviors and attitudes beyond what's physically wrong with them. Your pain may not be evident and you need to understand that people not know that it's there. And so focusing on that whole person, podcast number 2, the psycho logical the science of mind and behavior that pain is in the brain but it's not made up pain is in the brain because that's what processes it and separating the pain from the suffering suffering sometimes can be a choice in how you manage the pain so managing the pain Fear avoidance and catastrophizing and perceived injustice were manifestations of not managing the pain well. Cognitive behavioral therapy and mindfulness and a variety of other tools can help you better manage the pain from a psychological standpoint. The spiritual is not necessarily religion, but it's bigger than you. It's more transcendental. It's more transcendent. It's positive thinking. It's not allowing you to go there, that negative place, that place where everything is bad. Focusing on that. So podcast number two, the psycho-spiritual, psychological, science of mind and behavior, the spiritual, bigger than you and positive thinking. And now podcast number three, the social-cultural impacts, the culture that has trained you, has made you who you are from the past and the present from within and without, things that you had control over and things that you didn't have control over. How those social uh, inabilities to deal with changes in life, difficulties in life, chronic pain, results in social disconnection, which actually is a very difficult, bad thing to happen. Your economic well-being and how that can impact your attitudes. It's not just healthcare costs and time and money, it's the loss of income, both maybe now and into the future. We talked about how important return to work is to the employee and employer. Getting someone back to work out of that worklessness mode will help them better manage their pain and that treatment needs to be interdisciplinary if you're gonna pull off the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model it needs to be interdisciplinary it needs to be a physician a physical therapist a psychologist and maybe some other folks along with that to take into account that mind body soul so hopefully at the end of these podcasts you have a better feel a better understanding of the importance of the biopsychosocial spiritual treatment model whether you're a clinician or a patient it's important to know these concepts it's important to address these concepts now I think actually I know that we created a mess in the mid 1990s by over prescribing painkillers we created a mess now we're in the mode of hashtag clean up the mess you create a mess you got to clean it up. But you can't clean it up without taking every potential treatment option available. So you hashtag clean up the mess with hashtag all of the above. Acupuncture, cognitive behavioral therapy, mindfulness, physical therapy and chiropractic, eating better, sleeping better, more active lifestyle, all those things, maybe some prescription painkillers, variety of different things going on. You've got to have everything available to you because you're never quite sure what's going to happen. So hashtag clean up the mess with hashtag all of the above using hashtag biopsychosocial spiritual. That whole person approach that is really, really, really important. If you don't get anything else from these three podcasts and the three hours that you've spent with me, it's about the whole person. That is the way to properly manage pain. I appreciate you listening to these podcasts. If you're so inclined and would like to continue the conversation, and you're on LinkedIn, connect with me. My name again is Mark Pew, M-A-R-K, P-E-W, or on Twitter. I'm at Rx Professor. I do appreciate you joining me and clearly clinical in these three podcasts. I hope that you have heard something that's helpful. If you have, pass it on. If you didn't, well, just kind of ignore it. <laughs> Thanks so much. Have a great life.